Hello, I'm Matt Waters, host of the Show Do Tell reading series, and I will be sharing the October edition of the Show Do Tell reading series uh, with the caveat that there is going to be more of these recorded interludes, including uh, introducing the readers and uh, the initial reading I did and do on a monthly basis to kick things off. And why is that this month? Because I just forgot to turn the recorder on for most of the reading. <laughs> so I did, uh, I scrambled um, to uh, still have recordings of, uh, of the, you know, of the reading. And then I was able to set the recorder up during the intermission. Um, so it's unfortunate, uh, but bear with me. Uh, like, I'm not perfect, you know? <laughs> Many people can attest to that. Um, and uh, we're just going to roll like that. So um, we'll kick things off with uh, my opening reading. It's a poem by Arthur Rambeau. And then you're, you'll hear from uh, the excellent readers uh, we featured this month. Um, so hope you enjoy. And uh, this is actually the fault of uh, the Yankees uh, because <laughs> my reading's on a Saturday and I went to game one of uh, the American League Division Series uh, the night before on a Friday night, uh, which the Yankees won. Unfortunately, their season, um, it was a doomed voyage, uh, ultimately concluding uh, on Jose Altuve's walk-off homer a couple weeks later. But, you know, it was a great season. What are you going to do? You know, most seasons you're going to lose and... Some of the seasons when you're in position to win at all, you're losing a grotesque, <laughs> incredibly painful fashion, and that's the Faustian bargain you make to have something to watch and be engaged in on a random Thursday night in July. And these are the decisions we make. Um, so uh, no harm, no foul. <laughs> and, uh, let's just get to this, all right? But it's the Yankees' fault. Hope you Arthur Rambeau is my favorite poet, and um, for the October reading, I, I wanted to read something uh, that perhaps had the element of horror or goth. <laughs> and uh, I settled on, uh, I was thinking Edgar Allan Poe. I recently started reading Edgar Allan Poe. I'm trying to actually, um, I'm starting at the, you know, uh, outside the castle, so to speak. I'm uh, trying to work my way up all, all the flights of stairs, uh, just really beginning to get into it because I feel like he's a great American writer and I want to be more familiar uh, with his work. I'm actually releasing an album pretty soon that's based on one of his poems that I love called The Dream Within a Dream. Um, but uh, I digress. I picked this poem, Hanged Men Dancing by Arthur Rambeau to kick off our October reading, even though in early October it's still pretty warm. <laughs> and actually right now as I'm recording this, um, it's it's a beautiful day. It's like a 60-degree day. But, uh, you know, towards the end of the month you start getting those kind of overcast 50-degree days where the leaves are kicking down the sidewalks and um, the wind's kind of, you know, circulating them uh, in a little dance. And, uh, you know, that they're burning and the dying grass and leaves and the bark the wood bark and everything it's got that autumnal smell um so we're getting that now um but it might have been more appropriate to read something from you know for the springtime aesthetic in early october because it's usually still warm but i went with um 
Hanged Men Dancing. Also because I love skeletons. Uh, I'm just a fan of... <laughs> that might be a strange thing to say, but I, ever since I was a little kid, I've just always been really, really into skeletons. And I think ever since I was little and in my old house where, where I grew up on 161st Street in uh, Whitestone, um, and uh, my mom would, around Halloween... Um, would put this Halloween decoration up of uh, the Grim Reaper with his scythe, skith, scythe, whatever that is. You know what I'm saying? Uh, what was it? My job to be able to pronounce words here? <laughs> Host of a reading series. Uh, but yeah, that decoration, along with like Count Dracula and Frankenstein, she used to put it up in a three paneled window uh, of our attached house we shared um, with the lens. Um, so uh, I think that's when I first got into skeletons and skeleton imagery. And that's why another reason why I love this poem. Hanged Men Dancing by Arthur Rambeau. Cheerful, one-armed, and black. The gallows dangles paladins. Satan's skinny skeletons. Dancing bones of saladins. Christmas carols fill the air. Small black puppets face the sky. Messer Beazelbub makes them dance. Smacking heads and yanking ties. Quaking puppets join spindly arms. Black organ pipes swaying high above. Their chests once pressed to maidens' breasts. Now coitally collide, disgustingly in love. Three cheers for dancers disemboweled. There's room to writhe on the killing floor. Is it a battle or is it a dance? Who cares? Mad Beazelbub fiddles evermore. Heels this hard don't need replacing. Chests have shrugged off shirts of skin. There's nothing shocking left to see. Skulls bear snow caps, white and thin. Crows crown heads, feather cracks. Fleshy chunks quiver on chins. They look like knights in paper armor, colliding in darkness and nocturnal winds. Breezes blow these hanged men dancing. Like an iron organ, the black gallows groans. Along the horizon, the sky turns hellish red. From violet forests rise lupine moans. Someone unstring these grim commanders who, underhanded, read rosaries of love. Broken fingers count pale vertebrae. No monastery this for the dead above. And in this dance macabre's mist, one mad skeleton can't stay in check. Like a spooked horse, he leaps into the red sky, stiff noose still coiled around his neck. His little fingers grip a bony thigh, squeezing out laughter more like moans, and like an actor lost in drama, retakes the stage to the applause of bones. Cheerful, one-armed and black, the gallows dangles paladines, Satan's skinny skeletons, dancing bones of saladines. It's amazing. I mean, every time I read uh, one of his poems, I think something different about it uh, every single time. And I notice different things. Uh, and that was no exception. Um, all right, onward and upward with the October edition of the Show Do Tell reading series. 
Daniel Brahm is the New York-based author of the short story collections The Night Marchers and Other Strange Tales, The Wish Mechanic, Stories of the Strange and Fantastic, and the chapbook Yeti, Tiger, Dragon. His third collection, Underworld Dreams, is forthcoming from Leith Press. The Serpent Shadow is his first novel. He is the editor of the Spirits Unwrapped Anthology from Leith Press and the host and founder of the Nighttime Logic Reading Series in New York City. We join Daniel's reading in progress. Both followed exactly the same way. The next person, another young woman, followed and stopped right outside the temple. The next stopped an arm length, an arm's length from her. Ramon was the next up. Green paint from his face was in his stringy hair and headdress. With a smile and a nod, he directed us to stand in the line. Anne-Marie complied and moved to an arm's length away from the last person. They had left room for me. Ramon nodded, directing me to stand next to her. I didn't move. Anne-Marie looked at me with an unabashed confusion. I didn't want to see her expression turn to disappointment, so I shuffled into line next to her. Satisfied, Ramon strode to the temple opening and disappeared inside. He called out, in mind, from inside the temple. Everyone responded by joining hands. The woman just outside the temple held a hand of the person standing just inside. Anne-Marie was hand-in-hand with the Mayan girl next to her. She held her other hand out to me. The Mayan guy was next to me, his arm outstretched and his hand open. His other hand grasped the hand of the girl who stepped below him. The chain of people continued down the curve, across the sock bay, and into the jungle. Come on, what are you waiting for? Anne-Marie said. I had a feeling that something was about to happen. That nagging feeling that I had forgotten. Something was spreading uneasiness through my bones. I just knew that if I joined hands with everyone, I was going to be a part of whatever this was. And I yearned for it. As strange as it was, I yearned to be a part. I put my right hand on the hand of the guy on the step. It was strong. He was no stranger to hard work. He held on to me as if he were gripping an important tool, and he kept adjusting his grip as if he were afraid he might accidentally lose hold. Then I reached for Anne Marie's hand with my left. Her fingers closed around mine, and a chill ran through me. I stood there in the line, not knowing what to do with myself, like during one of those moments of silence in an assembly back in high school, while I wore a silent prayer in temple. I was never able to focus on what I was told to do or pray. My mind would always wander and run wild, like it was doing now. I thought of how that guy's hand sort of felt like Dad's, and how much it meant to Dad bringing us on this vacation. I thought of Anne Marie standing outside of the club last night of her leg against mine when we were sitting outside the room at the hotel. I watched the smile on her face slowly growing as she watched me. I thought of how good it felt to be close to her, how good her skin felt. I wanted to feel her chest against mine and her arms wrapped around me. She blushed and a big smile rubbed on her face. I smiled too and a laugh escaped me. She attempted to chastise me with a stern look, but the blush never left her face. I looked to the sky and listened to the breeze rustle the treetops, to the insects and birds, and the sounds of people on the stairs shuffling in place. I had been sure something was found going to happen when we all linked hands, but nothing had happened. A little pop resounded from inside the temple, barely audible above the everyday noises. I felt it more than I heard it. 
helps someone to know there's champagne. There's something vacuum sealed. I listened for it again, and I heard a faint hiss, like air escaping from the tire. And then Ramon screamed. The guy holding my hand squeezed tight. The chain of people tugged, and we all lurched toward the rectangular door. Ramon yelled. In excitement, a horrible smile spread on the face of the woman next to Anne Marie. My arms spasmed. I felt a shock in my right hand. The jolt shot through me and out my left hand. As quickly as it had come, the sensation was to her. I tried to keep a hold on her hand, but she fell too. And their hands came apart. The line shifted. Everyone lost their handholds. Ramon stepped outside the temple entrance, his form and failing arms a green blur, visible for a flash before he stumbled back into the dark. All along the chain, people were letting go of each other and breaking their silence. The sound of their tense conversations joined the din of the jungle. Ramon stumbled out of the temple again. A big green snake had its jaws clamped over the bottom of his face and his neck. Its long body floated in the air next to him in defiance of gravity. It looked like one of those tree boas, but all grown up thick as my leg. Ramon swatted at it and stumbled. Feathered wings unfolded from the snake's back with a whoosh. They were red, red as Ramon's headdress. With each undulation of the snake's body, the wings grew a little larger, yellow. Then blue feathers appeared among the red as they opened. One summer, Dad had shown me a butterfly crawling out of a cocoon pumping blood into its new wings. This was like that, only it was happening much, much faster. People were screaming. In the corner of my eye, I saw Anne-Marie crawling into the temple. I knew something horrible was happening, but I couldn't look away. The way the snake moved, the way its body cut the air was of profound importance that was eclipsing all other thoughts. Looking at it filled me with calm. Despite the erupting chaos, all I wanted to do was watch its green scales catch the sunlight. The two women who had fallen crawled to their knees and bowed their heads. Another woman spun with Ramon, ignoring his muffled cries as she tried to dance with him. The snake whipped its body and knocked into her. She lost her balance and stumbled over the edge of the pyramid. Ramon's hands found the snake's head and tried to pry it off his face. A rivulet of blood ran down his neck, a red-gray streak in the sweat and green paint. As he struggled to free himself, the snake's wings extended fully. A symmetrical arc of bright red and yellow and blue feathers began to vibrate, then became a grayish-purple blur that buzzed and clicked like the flying fish we had seen this morning. The snake rose higher. Ramon's feet lifted off the pyramid top. The words and clicks intensified as the snake struggled for altitude, and it opened its mouth and let Ramon drop. He fell to his knees, clutched his face, and flailed his other arm. The thing hovered above him with its head facing me. I didn't get the sense it was seeing me, or could even see it all. Its eyes were solid, black, and struck me as something that belonged to a deep sea creature, or something that lived in the dark. Ramon let out a sob and cried, Why? The snake lunged at him, and he rolled to avoid it. It snapped at the space where he had been a second ago. Then it snapped at the air, wildly. The inside of its mouth was black, unnaturally black. The black of space, I thought. The black of space between the stars. A loud hiss was coming from its open maw. Something about the horrible sound brought my wits back to me. I backed up and lowered myself onto the first step of the pyramid. 
I wanted to run for cover, but I still could not look away. The snake flew in small circles above our moan, gracefully moving through the air like a fish through water. Tendrils of black smoke trailed in its wake. The snake was wafted, the smoke was wafted from its body and floated sideways, not up like smoke should. It screwed out. Patches of skin on the snake's back were turning black. It twirled and corkscrewed and rose higher. Black patches on its belly were crackling and bubbling. I thought it was burning, but there wasn't any fire, only the black eating away at it in the thick smoke that lingered too long in the air. A long piece of skin starting at its head peeled away and fell off, exposing muscle and bone. Two women who had been prey sprung to their feet and tried to catch it. They leapt into the air, reaching for the snake, ignoring its lunges in their direction, and only captured handfuls of emptiness. Skin fell off its head, tail, and back, but it continued snapping and lunging, even though its bones and half its skull were exposed. With a mighty heave, it thrust itself skyward, but its buzzing wings went still, and it stopped rising. Feathers crumbled to dust. Black patches spread over the last bits of green scales. It jerked and whirled as it fell, a withered black shape against the sky. And then it was only black dust, raining down on the pyramid, coating Ramon and the worshippers and me. I carefully stood and approached the temple to find Anne-Marie. Ramon looked up at me as I passed him. His face was marred with gashes. Tears and blood were running down his face. I had never seen such a deflated, defeated look before in my entire life. The man was weeping. Everything about him screamed confusion and pain. I felt eyes on me. Anne-Marie was standing in the rectangular opening to the temple, watching. Cool as can be, Ramon's loosely finder tucked in the crook of her arm. The two mind women were looking past her own, not her. Framed in the square doorway, she looked magnificent and regal. She was just Anne-Marie in her hiking clothes, but she surveyed the chaos with such poise. Standing there like that, it wasn't hard to imagine her as an image from one of those Stella come to life. I don't know what went wrong, Ramon said between deep sobs. It did everything right. The woman looked at him and back to Anne-Marie. Their eyes opened wide and fixed on her. Santa Morte te llama, Anne-Marie whispered. The same death calls you. She had spoken so softly, so quickly. I wondered if she had even said it at all. The two women grabbed Ramon by the arms and began to drag him. It was such an act of violence, I felt a pang in my stomach. Without any compassion, they towed him to the other side of the pyramid and disappeared over the edge. Anne-Marie came to me and brushed black dust off my face. Good look for you, she said. Seriously? I asked. Holy shit, what the hell was all that? Come on, let's just get out of here, she said. Thank you so much. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Sorry. Um,
So yeah, mines, you know, the, uh, the kind of um, first time uh, uh, listening, hearing, uh, I immediately thought of, you know, the combination animals in a mind and dog, like a quetzalcoatl yes. type of thing. Uh, yes. That's yes. exactly what I was. I got in some wild shit in college, let's just put it that way. <laughs> but, um, what, what attracted you um, to, to cover this subject matter? I also, um, you know, it's always interesting uh, considering tour, tourism and, and money infringing on ancient civilizations or uh, messing with the authenticity or, or things of that nature. So, so like, what, um, what, what attracted you to write uh, fiction uh, about such subject matter? Yeah, I think, I think you're, um, did I lose it here? Uh, I think you're picking up on, on that. I had traveled um, to the area as a child and as a teenager, and I had had a chance to see, um, I'm showing my age here, but I had seen that area, what's now the Mayan Riviera, before it was built. So these places that I had gone to, when I had come back year after year, suddenly like these places that were just so magical to me as an outsider, now where I literally like saw the actual bulldozers that were here coming in. And so it was like this amazing thing to me. But then again, there's also two sides to every equation. Uh, and, you know, I didn't get to it in the section, but what to me is a tragedy to someone else, like some of the families that I knew there, now that I've returned there 20, 30 years later, what was some of the worst poverty that I had ever seen in the world is now um, is now ameliorated and changed. So it's like, you know, uh, every, you know, despite how strongly we feel about this, everything can be a double-edged sword. So I wanted to capture, somehow capture that, and just like, the, use the magic as maybe a metaphor for a, um, a place of transition. That's great. Well, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing your reading. Uh, Dana Prom, books. Thank you for having me, Oh, thank you for Thank you again to Daniel uh, for, for uh, coming out and, uh, you know, apologies again to the listeners and our readers about uh, the uh, truncated or bifurcated uh, nature of uh, the podcast. Uh, as I was scrambling just to get recordings uh, with my phone because uh, I forgot to set up the uh, device I usually use for uh, the first two readers uh, last month. And again, it's the fault of uh, the New York Yankees. Uh, playing their playoff game <laughs> and uh, me being too charged up to sleep uh, when I got back and being exhausted the next day and not at my peak uh, mental faculties uh, to host the event. But what I'm hoping is uh, the quality of uh, the reading comes across because it, it, it was a terrific addition. Um, and uh, Daniel was our first reader and Claire Zidell was our second reader. And uh, let me just introduce Claire now. Uh, Claire Zidell is a writer originally from the Chicago area. She is mostly a playwright. Her plays have been produced or developed at 59 East 59th, Dixon Place, Theater for a New City, the Hudson Theater Guild, and more. Her writing has also been in Breadcrumbs Magazine, Fringe Biscuit Magazine, and more. She is a graduate of Tisch School of the Arts Dramatic Writing Program. And I uh, hope you enjoy Claire's reading. Joined in progress. I forgot to uh, <laughs> I had to stop recording and start again. Joined in progress. Thank you. I like you have a patient time to indulge on something other than Oh, okay. Finally noticing the line of ice cream as a kid is all gone. I poorly offered a napkin as a solution. Thanks. There was a deathly lull that consisted only of smacking sounds, largely from Stephen, who'd gone with plain vanilla. He was unnecessarily analytic to 
ADHD, major case of defiance. He threw his own, he threw his own ice cream straight at Patrick's chest. My stomach reeled, mortified as Patrick got to come. His freckled jawline plunged straight into my lap. Sorry, he was hurt. His irresistible hair brushing past my nostrils.
Lynn production flash a grin at Megan and Patrick. His charisma had retreated now that his charms had no target or destination. Popping down on the bench, Amanda unceremoniously handed me the stack. I understood that the retrieval had been her contribution to the operating, and mine would be the actual cleanup. Without argument, I squatted on this concrete and threw the napkins over the sticky mess as Stephen and Adam came walloping back across the street. Adam brushed Stephen's arm as they reached the curb, a result maybe of being winded or having less facial awareness. Stephen unrightfully took this as an assault and shoved Adam's scrawny body, body straight to the concrete. Adam cried out in pain while Stephen declared himself the victor by balancing on the red fire hydrant. Boys are so stupid. I didn't tell Amanda the details of my failure and instead hid behind my abysmal self-esteem. I could just tell, I sputtered. He was actually an attractive person. People who are actually attractive don't like me. That's not true, Amanda responded, while signing herself on the back porch of her own house. The rays of light zigzagged between the boughs of the fir trees and somehow found their ways to her thin arms, leaving her with an even color. Honey golden tan like a prize roast chicken. Name one person I stabbed. Amanda hesitated. Without meaning to her silence, seemingly confirmed the words of my anxieties. That, try as I may, I was at least viewed as, uh, essentially unlovable by my peers. Perhaps that was, it was my commitment to being so beloved in other ways. As a daughter, a sister, a student, a friend, a daughter of God, that there was no room for anyone to love me in, a co- in that coveted way. Other than my breakout on my chin, there was nothing observably, observable, observably ominous about me. Uh, in fact, in a certain light, I think I look palatable. Uh, even cute. It must have been something deeper, something so innate that my own self couldn't even identify. was dependent on my perceived desirability as a romantic partner, not to say that any girl who believed that to be true rendered themselves limited or pathetic, so much as moved by certain ideas about how a woman should find a purpose in this world. But really, I was upset that one of those things, one of those grand concepts that pulls us out of bed in the morning and pricks at the corner of our mouth while we walk down the street, head full of pink dreams, seemed a little less possible for me. Romance would always be a fantasy rather than a reality. Frustration, man was distraught and flopped over onto her stomach, the tiny checkered pattern of the chair imprinted on the back of her thighs. See what? She asked if she were, as if she were already, had already forgotten. Mr. and Mrs. Flett had saintly stolen boys away for go karting for the rest of the afternoon. Dad was driving the speedboat through the shallow boat while Mom kneeled backward on the back seat, her sweaty knees digging into the cream colored leather as she tried to take pictures of the retreating dog. Amanda reclined in the front, an orange cream sickle dangling from her lips. I was curled into a ball in my one-piece razorback, an old favorite from my swim team days, a beach towel around my shoulders like a security blanket. Dad drove the boat at a 30-degree angle, dragging us to the marina to refill the tank. The marina on Brown Lake was a collection of docks, a few gas pumps, and a small shop for sales and repairs. The marina atmosphere was far from bourgeois. There, wasn't, there weren't teenagers the dock, savoring beers and cigarettes like they always seem to be in movies. There weren't sailboats or yachts tied at the dock, but fishing boats and old pontoons. Deep mid-length speedboats waiting for the weekenders to run them out. A burly man with a marina t-shirt clambered out of the shop as we pulled up. I shrugged out my towel and hurled my body off the boat, landing shaky-footed on the dock. Together, 
where me and the attendant scrambled up the ties, securing the rope around the poles of the dock, pulling the speedboat snow. Dad gestured to the gas pump and the man tipped his fishing hat. Can I buy some pretzels, I asked, only to escape for a moment. Dad nodded, handing me a five. Since my humiliating interaction with Patrick, I'd been buying for a few hours to myself. But Mom scoffed at my antisocial behavior and enforced a certain potion of participation in the day's activities, essentially forbidding me to stay out of the house alone. I looked at Amanda to see if she wanted to come along. She waved me off and lay flat on the back of the bottom of the boat, letting the pops believe that drops on her sternum and the breasts of her floral bikini. Dad threw me at my teal flip-flops and jumped out of the driver's seat to pump gas. Flip-flops were still slimy from a slip in the algae the other day and suctioned to my feet as I walked. The, ship was, the shop was mostly bait and tackle. A few prize motors displayed on the wall. All the can, candy and snacks were on shelves below the register like at a drugstore. Behind the counter, a boy about my age was winding fishing wire around his leather pole. The bell over the door tingled when I walked in, startling him a bit, causing the fishing wire to unroll around him. Gave him a small wave, signal, if not evident by appearance alone, that I was not threatened. Hi, he said gently, noting that I was indeed not a danger. Crouching down, he went to retrieve the fishing wire as I glided toward the snacks. Instinctively, I grabbed a pack of MMs, remembering simultaneously that I'd come in for, for pretzels. The combination of the two snacks seemed like the end, felt like the antidote for disappointment. The perfect afternoon of backward, backwoods comfort. Both I realized that there wasn't prices on them. How much of that MMs and pretzels? Separately or together, he asked. I noticed that he had on a white tank top with Marina's logo stamped over his heart. His fingers were nervous as he tightened around the fishing rod, innately as if they were almost they always trembled. Together. Two fifty, he said, gesturing to the row of snacks. All candy is one fifty, all salty snacks are one dollar. Pawing over whether or not I should get four snacks, one for each of us. I registered an anxious energy directed at the crowd in my head. Suddenly heated, I took the MMs and pretzels at two apiece and flung them up at the boy. His mouth half opened halfway as if he wanted to fill the space between us with something. He quickly closed his mouth. I pushed my five dollar bill across the counter. Skittish fingers shoved the bill into the register. Gathering my small loot, I turned back toward the lake. Before I reached the musky stamp doormat, something stopped me. Um, wait, I began. When I faced him again, he pulled, was pulling out his eyelashes, which were luxuriously long. Behind, his, behind them, his eyes looked strangely deep. His soul went back farther than humanly visible. I felt like he spent a lot of time in there, inside himself. Uh, there was an alert to his mystery, as if it were something that I would Angler's Haven, that pizza place. We'd gone there a few nights ago, gorging ourselves on cherry coke, slushies, and salty popcorn. The joint was surrounded by a small cluster of cottages, all held by the same owner. They had practically laid claim to a small beach, which had a kiddie play area where, in the span of ten minutes, Stephen had broken the plastic slide and Adam had been blood, blood sucked by two leeches. The pizza was so good that I hadn't even been angry with Stephen, with Stephen when he split a cool cue against my hand. Wasn't entirely sure if we'd be allowed back, but I was already subjecting myself to such certain embarrassment, making the permissibility of my presence on the premises seem like a faraway worry. 
as if he were constantly reminding himself, reminding himself how to move through the world. He came up to me until we were nose to nose, or rather chin to nose. A sharp inhale commanded his posture, and he attempted to situate his body in a more confident position. I wondered what I smelled like. He looked around me as if I was expecting someone to walk through the door. Maybe, he began. It could be a really good thing. My dad seeing me with you? Okay. You have to know, I, I, I have a secret. Although he um, didn't immediately place me in his confidence, the weight of his clandestine life began to just transfer. The agony and guilt of it found itself resting on my shoulders. My health class last semester had presented us with an endless barrage of dangerous situations and how to identify them. I didn't recognize this particular scenario from any of the sensational PowerPoint slides, but I recognized the same darkness that hung in a low fog over the room as my teacher flipped through the presentation. My unsteady limbs suddenly felt the need to flee. I think he began to divulge. I think I'm gay, but my dad can't know. So it would be really nice if I could get for him to see that I hang out with nice girls. But if we went on a date, it would be fake. Something uh, so that no one would know, like, had 
questions uh, are so you know insightful um, throughout, and it, and it reminded me because because uh, I try playwriting myself that um, interiority and observation is so important in playwriting as well, and uh, it, it made me uh, wonder um, if you could describe the way playwriting has affected uh, your writing of prose, and if you feel uh, them in comparison uh, when you're writing fiction, is it a welcome departure from playwriting? Is it more of a challenge or a little bit?
Judith Lee Herbert's chapbook, Songbird, published by Kelsey Books, was a finalist in the Blue Light 2017 chapbook competition. Her poems have appeared in Bard's Annual, Before the Dawn, NCPLS Review, LIQ, These Fragile Lilacs, First Literary Review East, Mothering in the Middle, and the Ekphrastic Review. Her poems placed second in the Mid-Island Y 2018 contest, an honorable mention in the NCPLS 2018 contest. Uh, hope you enjoyed Judith's uh, reading, and I, I highly recommend Songbird. It was a fantastic read. And uh, thank you uh, for tuning in, and uh, thanks for your patience with a slightly altered format. I, I hope uh, you have enjoyed this, and uh, I'll see you in a month uh, for the uh, November uh, reading, uh, which I'm looking forward to uh, with Global City Press and Review. I'm doing it in conjunction with them. So enjoy Judith um, and uh, her uh, amazing poetry, and I'll catch you on the flip. Thank you, Matt.
say um, the poems in it are largely about my family, and uh, it's almost a memoir in poetry for me. Normandy, 1994. We are sipping wine, salad niçoise before us, as we sit at a long table at the prey door. Red and gold damask velvet papers the walls. Dad is standing, speaking about how he jumped in the night before D-Day, fought in hand-to-hand -hand combat to take Carrington from the Nazis. We have taken a bittersweet journey here. He is losing his battle with cancer. He has arranged this gift for us and our families. We are here to bear witness. And here's one more about my father. And you obviously hear he was a veteran of World War II. Letter to my father. When you lay wounded in the snow, <clears throat> in Bastogne, alone among the fir trees, so cold and wet and numb, Wondering if someone would come or if you would die. Tell me how you held on. You told me only about General McCallum, how when surrounded and asked to surrender, he said, nuts. You savored his brazen word of defiance. Mom has lost the plaque honoring that battle, along with the Bronze Star Medal and Purple Heart. She is confused and asks where she lives and when she is going home. Dana leaves for college in the fall. Alan has turned 71. And you are gone. 17 years. I search inside myself for that force in you, knowing your blood runs through me. girls in mint green and okra kimonos, glowing lanterns floating in air, enamel butterflies, cobalt blue waves trimmed with gold swirl along the rim 
of the porcelain chocolate pot. Did you sit at the family's wooden kitchen table, sipping chocolate from one of these cups, holding in your hand an alternate universe laced with gold? Did you buy the set yearning for a smile from your wife whose dreams had evaporated like the steam rising from your cup? My mother told me you were tall and handsome, gentle, Latvian Jew, socialist, law student, and then Taylor. She couldn't remember the sound of your laugh. It had dissolved like a cube of sugar, leaving only the taste of sweetness. Engraved in her memory, the day when she was six, the sky was stormy and filled with dark clouds. Her mother came into the room and wailed. Leonor, your father, is dead. Now the chocolate set sits on the glass shelves in my living room. Glazed pink cherry blossoms, dark green pine branches waving in the breeze. Pale blue mountains reach up into a hazy sky. going back to yesterday because I was a different person than Lewis Carroll. Head first, she has descended into the rabbit hole as we follow, hanging on to her chic clothes and elegant jewelry in boxes. She flies downward through space, a fragile, wizened dog, without history, wearing cheap Mardi Gras beads and sweatsuits. When I visit, after introductions, we hold hands. In shattered words, she tells me, I have found you. I don't want to lose you. Alice, how long is forever? White rabbit. Sometimes just one second. So some of my poems I actually wrote during um, my mother's 
illness, uh, dementia, and writing poetry was actually a way for me of dealing with the emotions that I was experiencing. The vase. One. I open the cardboard box and unwrap the vase that used to stand on the oak buffet in my parents' home. A wedding gift to my grandparents. Porcelain cherub. Two nymphs reaching upwards. Bunches of lilac grapes amidst leaves trimmed with gold. Two. The youngest of seven, my mother is the only one still alive. When she studied Italian, she taught me to say, la lingua italiana e la lingua parlata dall'angeli in paradiso. The Italian language is the language spoken by the angels in paradise. I fill the vase with pink hydrangeas, set it on my oak dresser, two nymphs, each a forearm missing, broken off by time, still elegant, ethereal. So Matt, I just want to check in how much time do I have? Two minutes? Uh, two more points. Two more points. Okay. I'm looking for something uplifting. <laughs> it's hard to find. Then 
arrives, bursting through the gates of impossibility, whooshing through the halls of the unexpected, from the heavens into my arms. One last habit. Songbird. Her words are leaving her like birds flying south, silhouettes across the moon. In conversation at a family dinner, I joked, the fun never stops. She heard me and nodded her head, signaling, yes, it does. Dana once wrote to me that her grandma was a songbird. My mother's voice, unbroken, sings in me. Thank you, Judith. Um, Thank you so absolutely. much. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, Reading poetry collections, uh, or or any book, but I think especially with poetry, yeah, something I really enjoy when I'm really connecting with it is I'll think something that I really wasn't expecting. So something like, like personal and might have been like mundane, or before I was like reading uh, poetry is illuminating, like a different insight about it. And I and I actually thought about this painting uh, that was in the kitchen, my mother's kitchen when I was growing up. And uh, how I occasionally stop and just look at it at random moments over the years, and I, I never really stopped and thought about that. Um, and, I, and I think it was through your um, the the poems like the vase, the porcelain chocolate pot, and uh, and there's another poem with the Mandarin girl in your uh, dining room that you that you described, and it's these uh, really vivid description of these objects, this intense personal meeting, and. Um, Really, really vividly describing what's there, stopping and looking at what's there. So I feel like this like pause to stop and look at something that you might miss or take for granted. Um, and I love that. Um, so why do you think you possess uh, such a gift for describing the design of objects, making the reader feel as if they are looking? And is there anything uh, from your life you can pinpoint as being pivotal to imagery like that taking such a powerful form in our poems? Well, I think that um, I'm a visual person, and I think we're all wired differently. Some people are very auditory, some people are more visual, some of us are also kinesthetic, like in terms of sensations. And when we write poetry, I usually attempt to address as many of the senses as I can, but I think that when I I am particularly um, attracted to visual beauty in terms of objects and art. And I think that it holds space for imagination and for meaning. And that I enjoy describing what I see, but then I'm generally going deeper into what the emotional meaning is for me, for the content. And my mother was a person who was very, she grew up very poor, but she ended up 
collecting things and being very interested in objects and jewelry. I take after her in that respect also. Um, and actually, even how jewelry looks or a piece of jewelry, that, that may be something that I write about in the future because it also connects to me, for me, with nostalgia, remembering a place, buying something, wearing something that came from a beautiful town in Italy. Or um, I think we can connect through objects to deeper levels of ourselves. Um, I also, just to out myself here, um, my day, my day job, uh, I'm a psychotherapist and I'm a clinical hypnotherapist. And it's interesting, your comment was interesting to me because hypnosis involves imagery and the use of the imagination and the world of the imagination through imagery. Yeah. Thank you. That's fascinating. <laughs> All right. Um, do you have books uh, here? Thank you. She has books. Check them out. Um, thank you, everybody, for being here. Uh, thank you to the readers. Thanks again to Judith, uh, Daniel, uh, Claire. It's a great day. Great turnout. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Buy some books. Yeah, we got to pick that. Yeah, we got My father grew up there. Yeah. And, so and there's, there is someone in the audience who's from there too. Linda, over there. Yeah. Yeah. See about that book because I would so much love to buy that from Matt's aunt who's in Dryhoff, a nursing home right now, and she loves poetry. I have the books with me. Thank you. But I remember Middle Village and the the store that my grandparents yes, owned, climbing that. I remember as a little child climbing that. You know, I don't know the exact address yeah. where it was. Yeah. 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 And, and I, the part about the jewelry, because my mother was a big jewelry person too, and I remember all the boxes in her closet. Exactly. Yes, it back Thank, Thank you so much. much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Very good. Very much.